发，冲冠凌乱处，小小雨鞋。Welcome to Extended Clip, episode 35. I'm one of your hosts, Eddie Averill. I'm Malcolm Baum, not associated with Barstool Sports at the moment. I'm JT White. And on today's episode, uh, Malcolm brought a nice double feature, far from the likes of Barstool Entertainment. Uh, Stray Dogs, the Simon Lang film from 2013, and We Are Your Friends, the Max Joseph film from 2015. Yeah. Now, how how could you go and do that? How could you program <laughs> such such a double feature that highlights such disparity between the high and low brow of motion picture arts? Well, I mean, it all started with a pure pure love of We Are Your Friends and Efron, and I've I've always loved this movie. I knew even before it came out, I saw the trailer. I'm like, classic. Mark my words. I, I'm going to jump right in here and say that the trailer is atrocious, in my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> I watched it after that because I remember back in the day, um, the podcast Hollywood Handbook did, a, did mm-hmm. a little riffing on that trailer. And I didn't bother to look at it on its own, you know, and it was a, yeah. it was a fun time. And I looked at the trailer after watching and mostly enjoying the movie, and I thought, oh, yeah. man. There's a reason I did not see this in theaters. Yeah, well, luckily, luckily, there's members of Extended Clip who could read between the lines and see the real messaging of, through advertisement. Um, you could look up the tweets, by the way. I was I tweeted, like, can't wait for We Are Your Friends. <laughs> you had the They Live glasses on exactly. watching that trailer. Study halls, SATs, liberal arts, student loans, layoffs, bailouts, broken dreams. This is not our future. Exactly. And I'm pretty sure I invented liking this movie. I'm, I'm not even kidding. I think I was the first person to like the movie the way I like this movie. So I got to give myself credit for that. And I, was, and I was wondering, like, is this like best of the decade worthy? Like, I, I really do yeah. love it. Like, and I mean, it, for, for me personally, it might. Maybe not top 10, but it's it's like it's up there. It's, it's on pretty, the greater list. It's on the greater. Oh, the big the big list. The one that <laughs> everyone is anticipating. Yeah, yeah. It's coming soon. Don't worry. And then um, Stray Dogs, Simon Lang, one of my favorite directors of all time, and he made a movie this decade. I hadn't seen it. I knew there was uh, real estate had something to do with it, and I remember the, the real estate subplot in We Are Your Friends mm-hmm. with John Bernthal. And uh, I was like, perfect. Fits like a puzzle. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? It's, you know, with the best of the decade catch up, you know, you're, you want to load up the episodes with, you know, really good movies that might make the list or whatever. But, you know, why don't we actually, let's go low. Let's swing low. Low brown. Well put. Uh, well, let's get right into Stray Dogs. Uh, this is Simon Lang's 2013 effort. It is a very slow film. We, we did Vive L'Amour uh, mm-hmm. maybe a dozen episodes ago. 20 episodes. I don't know. It's, it's been enough episodes ago. Time keeps on slipping, as they say. <laughs> uh, but this is much slower than that film. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a film that really revels in its pacing in a way that in the handful of Psy films that I've seen, uh, he hasn't quite gotten to this length yet. So I very much appreciated that. 
Uh, everything in this is so like carefully composed while not being like too beautiful because mm-hmm. it's not trying to glamorize the situation it's in. It's just his sense of composition is so naturally. He has such a natural gift for composition mm-hmm. rather uh, that everything he shoots is just like pleasant to look at for anywhere from 30 seconds to 15 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, framing and composition is his bread and butter. And mm-hmm. I mean, you see it all across this movie and you know comparing for someone who's uh familiar with his filmography even the movie he made in 2009 which is a lot more like playful and like kind of uh has like a sense of mysticism to it and in like uh you know it's set it's i think it was filmed in france's face and i don't know if he had a feature in between that yeah this is this is like him going into one of his instincts of like the humor like kind of like the dry humor you get from his movies is gone like at least to like a certain extent and it's there's still a couple of pretty funny scenes there's still this. a couple of cu- funny th- yeah it's still there it's still yeah. there but i the ending of this kind of left me a little bit more uh hopeless i guess than uh, yeah. some some other of <laughs> of his movies and this was rumored to be his last film which would have been insane but luckily he's got one coming out in you know some foreign film festival uh so the patriarch of the family is uh lee kang shang mm-hmm. and he he's the Ming lang regular Mm-hmm. And he is holding signs uh, to advertise for apartments uh, on a in the middle of the road, like uh, under a bridge. And that's like the first 30 minutes or so uh, for his plot line, at least. And getting a sense of like just standing in the rain as traffic zooms by you, holding a sign for that long, you know, <laughs> really yeah. just like the torture of that kind of work. Pretty depressing. Yeah, it's no I mean, it's pretty sad stuff. I've I've had this job myself mm-hmm. as a sign holder. I I mean I only did it for three weeks, so I, I'm not gonna claim struggle here. Yeah. But um, it's a pretty yeah it's it's pretty you know demeaning. Mm-hmm. It's it's one of the worst jobs I think you could have. I don't know, like just in terms of the solitude of it and just getting nothing out. Like yeah. it's it's like literally a job. Not to reduce the labor of the the, the sign holders, but it's yeah. like honestly something a post could do exactly yeah i mean it makes you feel useless and i mean that's a a, you know elucidated by a great scene where he recites a poem and then sings it while we get a nice close-up of him crying yeah that scene builds so well because it's like first his eyes are a little glossed over as Mm -hmm. he's reading it and then you know by the end it's while not being too dramatic you know uh in this kind of rare close-up in this Mm -hmm. movie uh you see his expression turn from sadness to just you know full-on kind of close to sobbing toward the end while Mm -hmm. still maintaining his composure enough to sing it to us uh but it is very moving and sad stuff Mm -hmm. i mean the redness of his eyes is insane and the sound design in all of these outdoor scenes is wonderful the way that it's capturing all the traffic whizzing by it really just like some of the most immersive kind of traffic uh and street side sound design that i can really ever remember You know, it's kind of hard about talking about this movie where like if someone told me, oh, there's like a 10 minute shot of like a close up of a man crying, I'd be a little bit I might be a little bit skeptical of like like, the quality or maybe it's like that kind of sounds maybe over pretentious. Yeah, I don't know. He makes it he makes it work. He he could do things that other filmmakers, you know, I wouldn't let get away with maybe or something like Mm -hmm. that. But it fully resonates. And just like the like. I don't know. He's working on so many levels mm-hmm. there with just, I mean, as someone who's like 
pretty unfamiliar with his work, only having seen Viva La Amor. I think the two are like lovely companions in the sense that they show like capitalist alienation Mm -hmm. so well in just like you spend like so much time in like wide shots of like these big like empty or like very compressed spaces and I feel like it just it gives you such intense feelings from that that I feel like he can really pull it off yeah and there's kind of a a through line of urban decay throughout like Ming Lang's work and I mean it's even extreme in his 2006 movie I don't want to sleep alone but this takes it to you know a whole nother extent Mm -hmm. there's not even an apartment building that we see in Viva L'Amour he's just underground he's you know he's homeless essentially the abandoned uh, building that they make into their house uh, is pretty well like I don't want to say constructed Mm -hmm. it's well lived in oh yeah just the shot of like towards the end um, when it's the matriarchal figure talking to the little girl and you're, the camera is just going over all the cracks yeah. and like bumps and the wall and where she's t- uh, talking that a house is like a person. It gets sick. It grows old. And I mean, some of the most baffling images I've ever seen shot mm-hmm. inside that house. There's a couple shots where I was like, I still was never really sure what I was looking at. Like yeah. it was, I mean, the speak on the production design, like as you know, kind of, uh, I mean, I don't want to say gritty, but like as, you know, not a great place to live as that place was. I mean, that wall is beautiful. Like, oh, it's yeah. In, insane. That... Insanely. Like, especially if the like there's a digitalness to this movie, too, that really works and helps capturing that that place. Yeah. It's, you know, digital kind of distortion where I think, you know, film grain would have been for certain uh, cameras that you could have used. Mm-hmm. But like uh, where in these darker interior spaces. Uh, the corners of the frame just become very distorted, especially in this uh, very long take that the film doesn't end on the penultimate shot uh, of the film where it's 15 minutes of these characters staring at the mural that's Mm -hmm. off screen. And then that's the reverse shot, I guess, is looking at uh, the main character looking at the mural by himself. The distortion in that it's really beautiful how like unclear it kind of becomes Mm -hmm. after a while. And I don't know, it's, getting out all of these like newer digital textures compared just to Vivla Moore. You know, mm-hmm. the the kind of textures that he's able to get out of the cinematography is really wonderful. Mm-hmm. There are some really crazy images that, you know, like you kind of get caught off guard by. Like every time they're in the supermarket. They often mm-hmm. oh, the kids yeah. often go to the supermarket and uh, fill up on free samples, which I'm definitely uh, down with doing that, mm-hmm. you know. There's a shot in the supermarket uh, through, like, the glass of the fridge mm-hmm. in, like, the co- in the frozen food section, or the freezer, rather, uh, that just, like, kind of makes the subject that they're shooting fade away through the glass a little bit. Yeah. And I don't know. It's just, like, textures like that, it allows these shots to hold for so long while still being super interesting. I mean, yeah, and a lot of these shots, they, I mean, they hold on for so long that each individual one is so memorable. Like, mm-hmm. it, and, and like you could, uh, of course, I mean, kind of an obvious comment, but like it gives you time to the unpack the meaning or, you know, just sometimes the, the beauty of the simplicity of it too. Like it's, I mean, yeah, I mean, just that last shot alone where, you, you know, you see them watching the wall and then mm-hmm. you get the reverse of the wall, him watching the wall. And that's yeah. kind of, it's kind of very simple in a way, but it's like, you know. I mean, it's it's brutally affecting, at least to me. And the way that it like implants these shots in your memory works so well because there is a long take uh, of someone watching 
that mural or looking at that mural about mm-hmm. 30 or 40 minutes into the movie. Yeah. And, you know, I think that must be two or three minutes long at mm-hmm. least. Uh, and, you know, it kind of burns that into your memory. So you kind of know what they're going to be looking at yeah. <laughs> at the end already. But that reveal, that cut, the last cut of the movie uh, still just works wonders because of the length of that shot. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I think I said earlier that maybe this one isn't as funny as some of his other stuff. And I still stand by this. And it's also very sexless, notably, which a lot of his work, especially in like the mid 2000s, deals with sex. I haven't seen The Wayward Cloud, but all the steel stills I see from that are like people with their legs spread open and it's like a cut open watermelon. Yeah. That's <laughs> the poster, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so it's That like, one looks like it would be pretty uh, nice and horny. Yeah. Can't wait. Can't in wait to watch it. In comparison to this one. Yeah, yeah. But kind of like. I mean, even what what's recognizable about like the the cities he would shoot before are mm-hmm. like gone. Like it's just, it's you know, it's pretty sexless. There's not as much humor and like, I don't know. It's more focused on kind of like just regular despair. But to speak on the funny, the cabbage scene kind of has. Oh, it's kind of funny. Very funny. It's kind of funny, right? That was a highlight. For me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like wh- like we got to upload that scene and put like. Watch Lee Kang Shang fuck up a cabbage. <laughs> like, make make it go viral or something like that. <laughs> yeah, but early on, yeah, the daughter buys a cabbage, uh, and the the father, you know, questions the purchase. And then later, her and the brother dress it up as a woman, and uh, you know, the brother calls her calls the cabbage woman Miss Big Boobies. Uh, which, you know, that's yeah, that's funny. funny too. Yeah. yeah, and then like uh, how uh, the younger daughter is so impressed, he's like, "Say boobies again." Yeah, no, there's the moments of levity mm-hmm. in this that, like, keep it from being the most dreary shit ever, <laughs> yeah, obviously. The most depressing. Yeah, it has to be, yeah. And then, obviously, later, the the father comes home and gets in bed with the cabbage lady mm-hmm. and, uh, sm- what's the word? Sm- Smothers it. Snuggles. Smothers. Snuggles. Snuggles. <laughs> <laughs> he, fuck- he, he smothers it with a pillow, thus killing it, makes out with it. It doesn't make out with it, gives it little kisses, and then, uh... Yeah. Starts chowing down ravagely. Yeah, he inserts his fingers into oh, the yeah. eyes and mouth like they're a bowling ball mm-hmm. and kind of goes to town on that for a little bit. Mm-hmm. And that, that's a pretty, you know, that's one of the uh, really dense images that really uh, <laughs> cemented itself in my brain while I was watching it. And I am serious because, no, like, yeah. the absurdity of the scenario is just like within this really cold and slow and dreary uh, film. Stuff like that, obviously, is going to stick out so much more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, another scene that sticks out to me is uh, the boat scene in the rain. Mm-hmm. That's kind mm-hmm. of like his notebook scene yeah. he gets to do. <laughs> mm-hmm. I've seen it also compared to uh, a Night of the Hunter scene where uh, someone's getting dragged underwater. I think that's... <laughs> that's what happens in that yeah, movie. Yeah, yeah. I haven't seen that movie in Someone forever. drives a car upside down <laughs> in the water or something? Yeah. <laughs> Who knows? The first time that you see the boat is great, too. It's mm-hmm. like very early on in the movie. It's kind of a long shot uh, mm-hmm. of him uh, getting the stick up against the uh, the grass to kind of undock the boat. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's played out like very long. It seems like it's something that wouldn't take very long to do. Normal film, maybe four or five seconds, yeah. you know, <laughs> uh, four cuts. Uh, instead, you have this like four minute take of him like, you know, 
getting into position one way, realizing that's not the most efficient way, turning mm-hmm. around with this giant pole uh, and yeah. like shoving it into the dirt to push himself off. And it's pretty great. And it, you really do feel a sense of accomplishment <laughs> when he gets floating. Yeah, and that's that's just great, you know. You to really enjoy Simon Lang's film, you got to give it devotion. You got to earn it. You know what I mean? He, he he makes you do the work sometimes, but I mean that's why we love him. You know? Well, I think no, that's like literally the key to this and like a lot of other kind of slow cinema yeah. stuff is if it's really working for you, it's unfolding as time goes on and the image just kind of stays there, mm-hmm. or sometimes in motion, like something like Satan Tango. Those yeah. long tracking shots are. Gus Van Sant movies that rip him off. You yeah. Know? Uh, <laughs> but here it's in stillness where it is unfolding in its meaning and it's just like aesthetic beauty kind mm-hmm. of uh, at the same time as time goes by. And I think the penultimate, you know, 15 minute shot is the perfect like thesis kind of uh, of how to watch this movie and how to let it all just kind of cement into your brain <laughs> i mean even that last scene that could be like a short film on its own just like yeah, those exactly. two shots yeah. are just pure pure money it's like what's that suspiria tagline it's like the f- if the first eight minutes of this movie scares you you know the last 12 will knock your pants off or something some shit like that what about it's the like, 143 in between <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> Yeah, this is like his longest movie. I mean, I, I I read this in a review, but it's a very smart thing to say, so I'll say it. I mean, the the digital lets him do longer takes that he could do with film yeah. ever. And I mean, I can't wait to see him go longer. I mean, kind of like there is a rejoice in the longness of these takes. You know, as if you've watched a Simon Lang movie before, you know you're going to get them. So it's just like it's always impressive just to see what he does with them. And you know, I, I hope for longer takes within his newer movie or whatever he wants to do. Yeah, I'll trust, I'll, I'll let him do whatever he wants. <laughs> but, uh, um, I mean, that's kind of, I don't know. I find enjoyment with it in it, not with it. <laughs> uh, no, with stuff like, you know, 1917 and all that bullshit, like mm-hmm. every year there's like a long take gimmick. It True. seems like, uh, and when I get away from watching, uh, like slow cinema and stuff that actually utilizes the long take in a really interesting and meaningful way. The long take kind of loses value for mm-hmm. me uh, when I see it used as a gimmick and just like, it's just kind of an easy thing and you realize how important cutting is and everything like yeah. that. Uh, and then I go back to a pitch it pong or I go back to Simon Lang. Yeah. I'm like, Oh yeah, no, this is like actually the best kind of thing. Like uh, mm-hmm. uh, this, like not calling attention to itself version of the long take for like expressionism and realism at the same time, Mm -hmm. uh, utilizing the long take like that is just kind of perfect in its own right. Not like the key to what cinema should be, but off to the side in the little slow cinema corner, it just fucking works firing on all cylinders. No. Yeah. I mean, I haven't seen 1917 and I don't think I'm going to, but I think like that subtler, uh, style of long take that doesn't draw attention to itself allows you like these beautiful moments of intimacy with these characters and people where it's just like you're watching them do like like sometimes even like shitting or pissing yeah and it's just like the scene uh, where the woman like feeds the dog and then squats and pisses yeah uh, that's I'd say better than any second of 1917 <laughs> or like re or just like um I don't know, moving and like yeah. intimate. No, I as the resident 1917 watcher of the podcast, <laughs> I can confirm that's true. 
Also, there's peeing in like every Sai Ming Lang movie. There's, yeah. You see the character. A lot of pee. A lot of pee in his Pop movies. Popping squats. Hell yeah. Or standing up, depending on the character. Exactly. Hey, it's a long movie. I had to pee a few <laughs> yeah. times Look, watching it myself. I'll be honest. I paused this movie one time. Damn. At the hour and uh, 10 minute mark. And I will say, I thought it was like the 30 or 40 minute mark. Uh, for being such a slow film, it kind of went right by, which is always great for mm-hmm. this kind of stuff. No, definitely. I, I kind of regrettably uh, watched it in blocks, just the way the schedules lined up. And uh, I mean, I already kind of want to rewatch it again in its proper, proper uh, way to watch it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no glancing at your phone. Thank you yeah. very much. Yeah. I had to put I had to put the phone in the other room. Like I said, it's all about devotion when it comes to his movies. Any any final thoughts on this one before you shoot it down, JT? Um. Yeah, sure. I don't know. I think like both uh this and uh we are your friends i feel like are great connective tissue to um the films i picked last week in a sense of like capitalist alienation which mm-hmm. i feel like is something that a lot of the great films of this decade will do a lot of musing on mm-hmm. um you just there's such a lovely contrast in stray dogs between like scenes where they're like pretty empty and even like when in areas that are more like claustrophobic like the grocery store or when he's standing with the sign and you see the cars move by it's just like you're either all alone by yourself um just miserable or you're like completely lost in the mix and uh forgotten and uh this is a five bullet flick for me rutten just right away it's a a masterpiece oh yeah yeah masterpiece five bullets as a man who was a sign holder and spends a lot of my time in grocery stores definitely resonates for me i mean and like you like you said like with the 1917 you missed the edit like simon ling knows the power of an edit too oh yeah the cuts in this are hard yeah the cuts in this are hard and he knows he knows when to cut it he knows when to let it simmer he knows when to let it cut um I'm I'm talking really stupid today. Really, like, the way the way <laughs> all of us seem very <laughs> sleepy. Yeah, like the way I'm talking, like the, I'm not saying words and phrases correct. It's maybe okay. maybe maybe because this movie fucked me up beyond reproach. Because it is it's haunting. The the ending haunted me. Five bullets. We'll be more uh, up and we'll be smarter for the smarter half of our double feature. <laughs> your friends. Um, yeah, this one's an easy five for me. This is a nice little uh, sixth sense for extended clip. Hell yeah. yeah. Haven't had one of those in, I don't know, a week? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Wait, we're synergized. No, uh, yeah, it's an easy five bullet one. It's uh, one of the best movies I've seen in a long time. And uh, that is with seeing another masterpiece earlier this week. It's kind of shaken up the uh, perspective top ten of the decade list. So... That is how highly I'm speaking of this movie. It is one of the best of the decade. And so we'll be right back to talk about another best of the decade contender. (laughs) We are your friends. Great title, too. We are your friends. Love the title. So now we're here to talk about we are your friends. (laughs) (laughs) We have got uppers, downers, screamers, laughers, MDMA, and some fucking special gang. We even got some mints for the kids. Fucking love music festivals. Yeah, every every take the rock. <laughs> All right, I'm giving you the rock, JT. What what did you watch this? All week? right, we're fucking back, and I am going to talk about what I saw this past week. I saw a few things, um, but new release, uh, Color Out of Space 
uh, Richard Stanley's return to the cinema. I haven't seen Hardcore or is it? Hardware. Hardware, damn. Uh, Hardware and is it Dust Devil? Yeah, Dust Devil. Haven't seen those either. Yeah, but those seem like up my alley in being like weird 90s genre stuff. Um, And this is like an interesting overlap and the start of a potential trilogy for Stanley. Um, based on a Lovecraft short story, I think of the same name, but Color Out of Space uh, is about um, Nick Cage and his family uh, when a meteorite uh, crash lands in their backyard and it uh, like starts to affect the water and all of the environment around it, which I really like. Um, or I, I like the film overall. The reason I was talking off mic about, mm-hmm. I feel like I'm not sure exactly how you fellows would feel about it because I feel like it's on the fence of being something of an elevated horror kind of thing. Mm. I when, mean, or not let you finish. Let finish. When the uh, meteorite uh, lands. Um, and starts like affecting the water and like fucking a bunch of things up. It gets it leans a little bit into like trippy colors, weird stuff, mm. territory that I was like I myself was a little on the fence mm-hmm. about. But then I think Stanley does a lot of really disturbing like uh, effects that I feel like are more in line with like a weird space horror kind of flick that I really vibe with. Like there's a part not to I don't want to spoil too much of this picture. But there's a part where two characters are like conjoined together Ooh. in a real disfigured hybrid, and that's uh, on like in the in the realm of some Cronenberg shit. Um, and I really vibed with that. Um, also, felt sort of like I mean, I think the Lovecraft roots really help it feel like a weird sort of fifties uh, B space movie thing. Um, but it was a really good time. Uh, I would say check it out. I'm curious to see what you fellas would think. From what, from what you describe, that sounds like I could get into that. I mean, I'm not against elevated horror as an entirety. I guess just some of the premier names that are elevated as of now. I kind of, I mean, but I guess I like The Witch and The Lighthouse, so I like that guy, right? So yeah, there. yeah. There. I thought The Witch was good. Yeah, I could be reasonable. Hey, <laughs> what's wrong with The Witch? <laughs> <laughs> Perfectly fine movie. <laughs> Extended clip. What's wrong with the witch? <laughs> <laughs> this is a Robert Eggers podcast now. Pro Robert Eggers. <laughs> I have not seen the lighthouse. I declined to comment. Um, what'd you watch this week, Malcolm? Um, I watched. I watched. I saw the Kuchar shorts program. But before I talk about that, I do want to say a couple things about the Tarnished Angels, which, as a Cirque novice, was really enlightening. Um, I mean, Cirque melodrama. We know he could do that. That's a you know, if you read up in the history books, you might even know he could do that. But, uh, I mean, the Tarnished Angels revolves around a guy who uh, races planes for fun. And so you get a lot of plane races. That's pretty sick, right? That is yeah. pretty sick. Um, and there's some, like, death scenes that I did not know Cirque had in him. I mean, Cirque shoots action wonderfully. It's No, Cirque <laughs> has know. the way of sneaking in the little action scenes in the melodramas. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're not even, like, action scenes nor- to normal people. Yeah. But to uh, formal fetishists <laughs> like certain people uh, that may be in this room, you know, uh, like driving, you know, super fast while super drunk to open. Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. 
what film? Written is that? on the Wind. Uh, one yeah, of the one of the yeah, best yeah. openings of all time. The yeah. opening of Written on the Wind. Yeah, which is basically that's an action scene, pretty much. Technically, you know? yeah. Uh, and it's incredibly done, and it works so well with like the melodrama that it's setting up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, to speak on the Kuchar series, I, I I enjoyed pretty much everything that was shown, and there's a great variety of uh, there's stuff shown on 16 millimeter, stuff that was mini DV. Like uh, it really went through, like the start. It went through both of their careers like in a condensed way um, that just really shows like what makes them great. I mean, the Kuchars, they're kind of like, uh, they're kind of akin to like a Matt Farley even. I mean, that's kind of a out of left field comparison, but they, you know, they were making movies with people in their community and uh, Mike Kuchar, who was there, he would tell us stories about the people who were in the movies, which was really entertaining. Like there was a, there's a big couple in the movie and like Kuchar, after the movie, you know, stopped, he was like, you know, those two only married each other because no one else would marry them. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, and it, I mean, it was kind of, kind of funny, kind of, uh, <laughs> kind of weird too. I guess it was an abusive relationship, but, uh, um, <laughs> but, um, the movies are, are really, they have a great sense of humor to them and are just, you know, they'll give you images like a man laying down on his uh, bed with his dick out and his cats crawling across him. You know, shit we like. A lot of them very apartment movies. Um, I'll highlight a few, a couple in particular. One's called Cattle Mutilation, where um, George Kuchar is working on a film, uh, a sci-fi film where cows are getting mutilated left and right, but it's also an erotic, like, porno thing, too. And But he be- begins to believe that cows are really getting mutilated you know pretty funny stuff that sounds great <laughs> yeah that yeah. sounds great i'm gonna have to scroll through your letterboxed diary yeah and uh, track some of these films down yeah if I can and temple of torment which is just kind of like a video diary of george kuchar in his kind of later years just some really good stuff there's a really good bit of him talking to a nun on tv having like a a full-on discussion with a, a taped thing of a nun trying to reform his ways and uh, a lot of stuff of him wanting to like kill his mother <laughs> like he lives with his older mother and like he's like you know maybe i should just you know kill her or something like that just to random friends um yeah kuchar's something to look out uh i think hold me while i'm naked is a, fa- a famous film by uh george kuchar which is pretty easily available on youtube damn check it out check it out link in bio link in bio <laughs> Um, I went to a screening at uh, the Little Theater inside the Egyptian, the Spielberg Theater. I've never been there. Uh, me neither until this time. I went, Apparently, uh, you remember when they were giving away those free posters that night and that's where I got my Spanglish poster? Yes, oh. I do remember uh, that. The door that looks like it goes into like a closet right there is another theater. Oh, that's uh, weird. Uh, yeah, and it's a little like 50-seater that's very uh, intimate, let's just say. <laughs> Uh, but Joe Dante was supposed to be presenting a, a couple 16 millimeter prints that he brought. Uh, the prints showed up. He did not. It started with a uh, a Looney Tune called The Daffy Dock, uh, which starred Porky Pig. And uh, it was pretty good, you know. Uh, but then it was This Is Not a Test, which is a, you know, B-movie speaking gently. Uh, very much a Z quality, like Poverty Row production that kind of showcases how, like, you know, at this time, kind of the death of the studio era, this is 1962, 
even these, you know, Z studios, uh, like this one, GPA Productions, uh, were like, they had this baseline competence of these people who had been working on movie sets for 20 years, you know? Like this guy who directed it, uh, Frederick Gadet, he, he worked on another TV show uh, called, what, what is it called again? It has a really stupid name. You Asked For It. <laughs> that's, that's a Which good name. A, it was a family TV show uh, that he directed several episodes of in the 50s. And then this is the only film he directed. And then he died uh, five years after this film at the ripe age of 44. Damn. Uh, he had been working since he was like in his late teens in TV, you know? Shit. And uh, so this guy threw together this really scrappy effort of a film, uh, an atomic age kind of Cold War thriller where a uh, really just lumbering bozo cop gets a radio signal that you got to stop all passing vehicles and create a roadblock because something might be happening right now. So uh, you get this kind of ragtag group of people who had to stop at this roadblock. And this sheriff is basically just trying to get them into a big rig uh, that they're going to use as bomb shelter for an hour and 12 minutes. Uh, And that's the whole movie. And you get a lot of like really goofy characters. And it's just like so well made in just such an unassuming manner and so many like playful uh uses of like blocking and camera movement that are clearly like workarounds of the budgetary constraints Mm -hmm. uh this film is just like in the middle of a desert on a road and then you have the interior of this like big rig truck and that's those are the only locations of the movie you know uh and you get this one like kind of beatnik kind of like cool guy like uh, <laughs> who's just like hey man why don't you just let us through brother <laughs> and just, like, this like big other lumbering white guy who's like talking to the cop like he's let's just say maybe not a white guy <laughs> uh but it's like such a beautiful just like product of its time and made me realize that i kind of got Kind of get back to the old days. I gotta, I gotta just go back to watching old movies. Back when things were good, the old days. That's what I <laughs> just always say. The say. baseline competency yeah. of fucking studio era filmmaking. Mm-hmm. Even this at the end of it in 1962. But uh, this is not a test. If you can track it down, check it out. It's a, it's a good, good time. <laughs> Great time at the movies. <laughs> I tell you, when I say that theater is intimate, man, though I am probably never going back. <laughs> the seats are so fucking close to each other. Like I was really, I my knees were at like a, uh, I'm gonna say, seventy degree angle or so. I like n- a nice obtuse angle. I like yeah. stretching them out a little bit. Mm-hmm. I was definitely acute in this theater, and I did not like that. I like to man spread when I can. Me too. I'm man spreading right now. I'm letting it fly. <laughs> Look, um, we're in a very small room, but we have made it so that all three of us can man spread. <laughs> this is a safe space for us to spread them open, spread them wide open. Also, the Red Cat Theater. I I probably would go back depending on what's there, but I I was uncomfortable in my seat. That's all I gotta say. <laughs> it could be a weight thing. I don't know. <laughs> we should just turn this podcast into complaining. <laughs> just rating chairs. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I went to eat at this donut shop, yeah, and the chairs sucked. Yeah, they clearly didn't want me to eat there. <laughs> when I got a dozen donuts, they thought I was yeah. gonna leave. Right <laughs> you know, on Wednesday, I thought everyone was just looking at me weird. Like everyone was just kind of looking at me in a way I didn't like. I don't know. <laughs> My, my my review of the week. <laughs> yeah, my week kind of sucked. 
<laughs> Everyone was fucking pissed at me. <laughs> Two and a half bullet week. <laughs> Two and a half bullet week. Uh, try to get a. You know, I'll, maybe it's me. Maybe I'm the problem. Maybe I need to make my weeks better. <laughs> we got to take this. You know, these skills that we've learned from cinema and logging it online. We got to transfer them to other uh, places of life. Like living in the valley and making it big, like they do in <laughs> "We Are Your Friends," the uh, 2015 Max Joseph film about a, a ragtag group of club promoter EDM bros uh, who live in the valley who want to get the fuck out of there and start making some real money. Want to live big? They want their life bigger than it already is. And let me say, just before we get to it, this is my favorite moment before the review starts. <laughs> <laughs> that's my favorite moment of the podcast it's just us just ready just to mixing make, it up with the boys exactly ready to get into the text um so right away you just get this big exposition dump about living in the san fernando valley so it's like this is the san fernando valley that flat stretch of land on the other side of the hollywood hills our greatest contributions to american culture remain the porn industry and ditzy girls but we've also got the best sushi in the Western Hemisphere. And it's always in the strip mall. From a lineage of uh, cinematic timestamps like Magnolia or Boogie Nights, you know, uh, or Targets by Peter Bogdanovich, taking the temperature of the San Fernando Valley on cinema. Uh, this does not work like how those films do. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but it's pretty funny. There's a lot of just like, you know, okay, if you didn't realize, that this is where I live uh, in the San Fernando Valley where these characters live and so desperately want to get out of. Uh, they talk about, you know, the punks in Canoga Park. Uh, they talk, they, they show a shot of Stereo One, which is where I will say I got fucking ripped off installing <laughs> a stereo into my previous car, but you know. Let bygones uh, be bygones. <laughs> it's all good. Dude was a total jerk to me. <laughs> another another uh, installment of our product review complaining podcast that we got to start. Uh, yeah, you see 818 tattooed on a character's knuckles, uh, the mm -hmm. bald friend of Zac Efron, who kind of reminds you of an 818 version of Spencer Stone. Totally. And my... Uh, me and my former roommate, we lived in the Valley for a couple of years. We're, you know, wasn't raised there like Eddie. We don't have that privilege to say, but I'm a little familiar with the area. And he even paused it when they're at the skate park. He's like, dude, I've gone to that skate park before. <laughs> <laughs> what a great moment in the movies where you could recognize where it is. Yeah, I was just like writing down things that I was familiar with. Like they talk about, uh, hey man, the best sushi in the West Coast is in a, in a strip mall in the San Fernando Valley. <laughs> and look, I worked at a sushi place in a strip mall on Ventura Boulevard for like 18 months and it was quite good. I'll say that. Yeah, I want to know what Jonathan Gold and Thom, Thom, Tom Anderson would think of this movie. <laughs> I feel like Tom Anderson would definitely have a not so warm kind of class <laughs> reading of it because yeah. that is what like sours you on the movie or at least me at least yeah. like uh, I'll say straight up these are you know the kind of people I've seen before but boy the title is a lie they are not my friends <laughs> uh, these are like the worst people that I kind of grew up with and it was like minor PTSD of like the rare times I'd go to a party and just see these types of bros and just mm -hmm. be wanting to cower. Uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, but, you know, uh, what it does is it shows them for what they are. Uh, mm -hmm. This is not, you know, a film where you're supposed to, maybe you are supposed to love these guys and it's on accident, but mm -hmm. I didn't take it as a film where you're supposed to yeah. love these dumbasses. <laughs> <laughs> I think, all right, 
I don't know. I I like the dumbasses. I like the dumbasses. Oh, yeah, I'm man. a little bit more sold. Maybe we're just cooler than you. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, the jocks v nerd. Jo- but no, I guess it's I'm just, just a nerd. No, no. I think all right. Like we, I think we kind of already said this off mic, but there's a definite artificiality to this movie. Yeah. But what what uh, what likens me to it is just how sincerely it believes in the fakeness and the fakeness of the glamour. And at parts, it sells me. I'm I'm sold by the dream. No, it just. <laughs> Eddie, was, Eddie's Eddie's giving a like a sh- shrugging yes off Mike. He's like, how could you argue with that? How could you argue with that? <laughs> I was also sold on the dream, just because it's like I mean, like they are like stupid, like bad characters. Yeah, and the film. I agree with that it, part. The the <laughs> film itself like just revels in stupidity, and yeah. it's just like it's like the nice bro experiences that I've had in my life, where it's like the the rare ben- benevolent frat guy or just like shotgunning a beer with a real moron yeah. Yeah. it's just like those little moments where it's like uh just just a dude who's like modest in not in just like i'm just a dumb guy like that's what <laughs> yeah. i do and like i appreciate that there's an earnestness there that's like yeah i'll, I'll i'm right there dumb with you yeah, this is this is us extending the olive branch because chances are, if you're listening to this podcast, you're not exactly a bro, you're not exactly a frat frat king or whatever. But you know, sometimes to have a good time, you have to you know lower your expectations of human quality and just you know enjoy the free drinks. <laughs> Let the Molly take control. <laughs> Smoke might, some PCP. Yeah, this might uh, speak to the more hedonist sides of our uh, personalities. I don't know. I uh, yeah, I don't know if I can quite get on board with it. No, I I am though. No, I'm able to view this from a distance. It like took me a while to settle into mm-hmm. the mode of watching this movie. First, yeah. I was very into all of the uh, local references, and then that wore off mm-hmm. quickly. Especially as they established how much they hate the valley, yeah, <laughs> and how much I love it. And it's just like, all right, dudes, like fuck off. But uh, mm-hmm. it is the that it's like what it's like growing up here. Is you talk to all these people who basically say what is said in this movie where he says you guys want to make real money you want to fucking live and die in the valley i get that that's the starting point for these guys but that's like right where i get off their viewpoint which i think is good because that just like lets me completely detach from it Mm -hmm, and just view it as a very the very strange aesthetic object that it is and uh we talked earlier about Ming lang being a uh, a returning champion to the pod yeah He's an auteur we've worked with before. Uh, and then this is the second Zach Efron auteurist project oh, that yeah. we've taken on before. This is like, he's really fucking good in this. Yeah. You know, like uh, the film, other than his performance, really feels like it's made on the really methy MDMA that him and his friends sell at parties. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just like, and I get where there's value in that because it mm-hmm. is like a representation of its subject. Mm-hmm. Uh, it becomes a little unbearable here and there, mm-hmm. but I think Efron as like the glue that holds this film together does a phenomenal job. Kind of. No, the movie definitely floats off Efron's charisma. And he, you know, it's a big juicy movie. He gets to do a lot here, but I, I do, I do kind of, um, beyond the bro stuff, the kind of the stuff with Wes Bentley, um, for the most part is kind of enjoyable. Even, you know, even though when they do hit the studio, it doesn't quite, uh, yeah. quite add up to maybe, you know, the spirit of most techno or EDM, you know, music makers. 
but I don't know, just kind of the kind of the aspirational quality of, you know, everyone wanting to be, you know, a big DJ and like, there, you know, there's certain scenes where, you know, even though, you know, these people are pretty well off, they still, like they said, they dream big and they want big <laughs> dreams. But like the humility of Efron uh, debuting a track to Wes Bentley off of his iPhone and they just have to, you get a great shot of them just standing there and listening to a song off the iPhone. And that's a very uh, modern quality. It captures well. It, it is in tune with what the kids are doing, I, I do have to say. It's very modern. No, the the sheer embarrassment of that scene is kind of what got me on board with mm-hmm. like watching the movies. Like when I was still kind of unsure, that at least helped me mm-hmm. uh, along the way. And that's kind of the uh, the turning point number one, if you will, uh, in screenwriting book terms, uh, is uh, you know Zac Efron's character, a uh, aspiring Hollywood disc jockey, as Letterboxd info for the movie <laughs> says, uh, meets this famous DJ. Uh, whose girlfriend he tried to flirt with earlier mm-hmm. and will then have a romance with. Uh, mm-hmm. And this DJ kind of like uh, brings him up, you know, gives him some opening gigs and gives him some uh, tips and tricks on how to succeed in the music biz. And mm-hmm. yeah, that's where the film, I think, really uh, tells on itself in terms of its like yeah. lack of realism because it feels like it's a really lived-in environment with these dumb bros in mm-hmm. the valley and then when it gets to both like the processes of music industry and just like song composition and like <laughs> how you make music, yeah. uh, it totally just becomes the dumbest bullshit ever. But it's also very just easy and funny to watch. Yeah, so, yeah. it's very enjo- I, like it's very enjoyable in a way. Like for you know, every- I liked how yeah. dumb and fake it was. For every time it fucks up, it get it still gives me something to hang on to. Like. I mean, just the fact that it references Juan Atkins alone is just kind of, I mean, it's kind of silly, but it's just like, also, I mean, I don't know, kind of like that sick synth that he pulls out, do the little analog yeah. fetish, you know, I was with it, but also, also the that, analog fetish thing is like kind of cringe though. Yeah. He's just like, well, the Bowie, that's how you make real music, man, with real sound. All right. <laughs> yeah. All right. Yes, that, but like the synth itself, pretty cool, right? It is cool. I get it. No, I get it. I, yeah. I, I was, I was into that moment. I yeah. get it. You yeah. Know? This is this is probably the biggest discrepancy we've had on the pod. In and I of, still think this is yeah, like yeah. a pretty good. Yeah, movie. yeah, yeah. I, I just don't think it's a masterpiece. No, yeah. And like, I give it a four and a half on Letterbox. I might have been coming out of the gate too <laughs> aggressive, but I guess I was just high off the the dance music in this movie. <laughs> There's a great scene. Um, where Efron is DJing at a pool party and oh, he, he breaks this down. This is amazing. He, it's it has it's ama- very funny. It this has, is the best scene of the movie. It has amazing moments where he breaks down how to uh, control a crowd and he does this via BPM. And I don't know the exact numbers, but you start at one BPM and you get the hips, you get the pussy yeah. going. <laughs> you know, th- there's like <laughs> yeah, he goes, "This is the most important part." Sorry, and he just yeah. like looks at her, just like mugs. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So her he, being uh, Emily Radajowski. Rad- that's how you say it. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, um, was called upon to do quite a bit of uh, romantic and dramatic heavy lifting in this movie mm-hmm. to mixed results mixed results yeah. I, I was thinking about it this is probably her heaviest role i could think of i think so just in terms of like just like how much she's on screen and how much she has yeah, to exactly. do yeah. um then he goes on to you know this is how you get their heart and then eventually you just own them and you know they're just dancing to the rhythm and i don't know it just kind of has like this sort of like fervor to it that just i'm really endeared by i'm 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 endeared by this movie a lot more than i'm impressed no absolutely it's like aesthetic choices that really wouldn't work for me 
in anything else yeah. but it's just like it's so like on board with that silliness and just being so fucking stupid it's great mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like the main set pieces kind of are what win me over stylistically with mm-hmm. it. Like that BPM breakdown where it will cut to like stock footage and dumb animations that aren't that dumb, you know? Yeah. Uh, just like weird uh, kind of tossed off footage away from where the scene actually takes place. And it gets relatively creative with that. And then there's a scene much like the penultimate shot of stray dogs <laughs> uh, where Efron is staring deeply into a painting, oh, yeah. uh, which comes alive because he's on PCP in the good version of the tripping scene in Booksmart. Yeah. Uh, where comedy and overall vibes are changed by uh, a hallucinatory drug being ingested by a character. No. Yeah. And of course, I mean, this movie knows how to party more than the fucking Booksmart does. Oh, of I mean, now, um, I mean, uh, what do you call it? The West Bentley DJ character doses him with a, a joint with PCP. In it, yeah. I guess which PC is so <laughs> weird because the DJ uh, introduces him by like you know defending like the sacredness of like yeah. a pure THC joint because yeah. he like throws Efron's uh, spliff away, which is an amazing it. moment. Yeah, it's funny, and then Efron throws his away too when the <laughs> driver pops up. Like in that scene, there are two fully rolled shits just tossed, tossed <laughs> off to the side. What the fuck is that? What is there tobacco in that? Yeah, it's a spliff. Spliff? Are you French? No. I'm American. Alright, this is the most important advice you're ever gonna get. Never mix THC with nicotine. Fogs up the high. Lasts longer if you mix it. It's not about making it last longer, it's about enjoying it. When it's party time, that happens sometimes, dude. Mistakes are made. But, uh,. What do you, yeah, there's a lot of weed smoking in this movie. Efron yeah. smokes a lot of weed. That's Much pretty like tight. Much like in our other Efron movie. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, in certain parts of it, at yeah, least. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I guess he does uh, PCP in this one, Crack and Dirty Grandpa. So exactly. He's up to he's up to a lot. Wes Bentley, Jason Manzuka's coming together, maybe, <laughs> for the... That would be great. Ben, yeah, Bentley... <laughs> Just an Efron movie with all, like, the, <laughs> all of the yeah. uh, character actors he's worked with surrounding Efron. Bentley, I mean, Bentley has like a menacing presence to him that's kind of similar to the the overbearing zany presence of Matt, Matt Zukas in terms of like... Oh, he just oozes scumbag. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, like they both get kind of typecasted in those type of roles often, Yeah, I'd say. Um, I'm trying to think of other... There's a great scene where they... Well, they buy a house eventually, the boys, after making uh, a lot of money with John Bernthal... Uh, <laughs> scamming people out of uh their foreclosed houses yeah very depressing stuff yeah. we're like oh obviously yeah efron recognizes how depressing it is yeah. and he wants to stop but they get a job like cold calling people who are on foreclosure lists mm-hmm. to charge them to negotiate with the bank uh very depressing stuff you know hey housing crisis it was real then mm-hmm. it's real now it's real now <laughs> yeah i think i mean i don't think that like you said, Efron recognizes it. Said, I think it's always depicted as like a scummy thing. There's no yeah, point for in sure. this movie where it's like entrepreneurial. Yeah, it's like because that's what they say. When, yeah, uh, he calls them like you know I forgot what he calls them uh, yeah. when he sees them at the diner. Their real estate boss, but he says no. We prefer to be called entrepreneurs <laughs> with like food in his mouth, which was pretty funny. That's a good realist take. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think I think what's a lot of this movie. It is kind of like a realistic depiction of these of these type of guys, maybe Efron's story is a little bit more romanticized, but, uh, I mean, like I said, like I, I recognize a lot of these characters also when they, a great scene is when they go to the Stanford party, this Ivy league 
party and it just sucks mm-hmm. you know it's just like i've never been to ivy league party i'm not i'm not i'm not in those circles so yeah. i just like to imagine yeah that sucks yeah, I do. that would sucks. suck i'm uh, never all right yeah no <laughs> so that like stanford party is kind of like the midpoint of the movie mm-hmm. is that efron ends up kind of going on like uh a date you know with uh mm-hmm. with the the girlfriend and assistant of mm-hmm. the DJ who's mentoring him. Yeah. And this is where kind of the romance uh, really springs up before then in the next scene where they meet up at a music festival, they end up actually hooking up. Now, this end of the drama, I was like convinced that this movie was just not working for me on a dramatic level. Yeah. But then I think when it gets back to in the last 30 minutes of the movie, just the drama of the camaraderie of the boys. Yeah. Uh, it really came back around, you know. Totally. When they go to get the house and, you know, then it gets into the really depressing part of the movie mm-hmm. where uh, Squirrel, uh, <laughs> one of the boys, uh, the Jewish member of yeah. the pact, uh, dies. And that was like a great moment, which reminded me of Spring Breakers when all the boys are in the pool singing Santeria together. <laughs> oh, yeah. This was my my uh, shitty like movie comparison yeah. was going to be uh, 1517 to Paris meets Spring Breakers. I think that's I think that's money. I think you might have hit the lotto. Yeah. I mean, as we said earlier, the bald friend in this movie is very Spencer Stonian. Yeah, uh, he is definitely the 818 Spencer Stone. Uh, instead of being yeah. obsessed with military culture, he like smokes mad weed and also sells drugs. He loves the club culture. Also, I mean, one thing that has to be addressed when talking about this movie, it's a, uh, it's emotional through line, uh, encapsulated in a single quote that Squirrel says at a at a sushi su- a sushi place in the valley. There's a scene where they're all just sitting together. They bought the house and Squirrel's just kind of dissatisfied. He's like, you know, we're just, we've been in the same spot for many years. You know, it's like, are we ever going to be better than this? And uh, this is a line that's repeated throughout the, as inspiration for Efron throughout the uh, rest of the movie. Yeah. To be honest, I mean, it's, I think it kind of makes the movie. If there's no, are we ever going to be better than this? It's like. There's no emotional cap to it. I think, I don't know. It, it works. No, I think it's actually kind of miraculous how the movie pivots at that point. True, to yeah. what it becomes at the end. And mm-hmm. like, there is the scene at the end where he, you know, asks out uh, Emily <laughs> Radzikowski again. But like, other than that, it kind of just pivots to being this like really core like friendship story. Uh, melodrama mm-hmm. uh, and it's kind of really beautiful like, mm-hmm. it's not the last 30 minutes but kind of the 20 minutes before that yeah. uh, that really work where they have that sushi dinner where they bond over that mm-hmm. and uh, squirrel's sadness is shown before he goes hard that that night at a party mm-hmm. and uh, ends up dead and like he has to you know look within his soul to find the song <laughs> yeah yeah that's where it becomes like corny and for phony and forced a little again mm-hmm. where he's like using all the like the samples of what we've heard before in a baby driver-esque way <laughs> of uh, recording people without them knowing and then sampling that mm-hmm. later on uh but you know it works for like a very blunt metaphor of like personal art you know yeah. uh and it kind of works on that level and he gets the gig that he lost for opening for his big dj friend yeah <laughs> i don't know i i yeah I, it's hard for me to take this movie like seriously yeah. because of how detached of a viewing it was yeah. but it was still a really engaging one on both like studying the very uh 
amphetamized style of it <laughs> yeah. and just like the culture of bros that it presents. Yeah. Uh, but it's also just like very hard for me to just like jump mm-hmm. onto it. Yeah. I think, see the thing about like, like every, I'm, I guess I'm viewing it from this vantage point mm-hmm. is that, you know, the kind of the corny and phony stuff uh, that the bro character, you know, is enveloped in is stuff that, you know, a bro character in real life would actually would consider has depth and like meaning. And maybe this is an, a happy accident. Maybe this is just pure termite art. But um, I mean, I don't know. It just works on that level for me. And I just, I don't know. It's super fun. I had a, I had a good time. I, dude, they, they are my friends. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it goes as surface level bro deep as you get. Yeah. And that's all it needs. Yeah. I agree with that. I just, I wish they were my friends. Maybe that's. <laughs> the, you know, I'll, intru- I'll, I'll introduce you. That I, I've never made friends with these guys. <laughs> <laughs> I never got to make. There's also there's a great great uh, when Efren's looking for samples of real life noises and like his friend is uh, using a nail gun on the roof. I noticed yeah. the last uh, audio bit of the nail gun is just a gunshot. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it is great. Yeah, and then there's the electricity of like the power lines, very Twin Peaks: The Return esque yeah. uh, use of electricity uh, for <laughs> spiritual powers of sorts. Uh, as he brings back the memory of his dead friend for all these strangers who really care about that yeah. shit. But uh, you know, it works for movie magic purposes mm-hmm. and that's what this movie's all about. Movie magic. <laughs> exactly. I mean, I just, lo- I love it for that. Efren gets to scream to a crowd. Are we ever going to be better than this? No, mm-hmm. I actually, yeah. I loved how blunt that ending yeah, was. Yeah. Like it's very unbelievable, but I kind of love the kind of like didactic moment that it becomes yeah. of questioning like their place in the world. And like, it's not really deep, but on like a bro deep level it's kind of a perfect note to end on yeah this is the ultimate millennial movie that's all i gotta say it kind of is i mean look they're always on their phones (laughs) (laughs) i mean it understands its phones to a great effect i think i mean just even that scene it's kind of corny but like everyone's like listening to voicemails that his friends have left him yeah stuff like that i don't know it just rings true my only voicemails are from like telemarketers that true I guess I'm not gonna, aren't paying yeah. attention. <laughs> I was going to say, people don't like me enough to leave voices. <laughs> like that, but yeah, I mean, I like to think that I, I could do that one day. Well, <laughs> you have any final thoughts uh, before you want to rate this one, JT? Oh, God. Um, I think uh, making a podcast is a lot like making an EDM track. You need that perfect mix of like natural noise, real life sounds, a little chewing, some coughs, some sneezing that really make it um, make it pop and make it what the people want. So I related a lot to this movie um, and it was just fun, like hanging out with the boys. Uh, So firing off uh, four bullets. Um, I'm going to reduce my score a little bit, but I'll 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 say that after what I have to say. Uh, Yeah, as an entertainer. I, you know, I, I relate to this movie and as my aspirations of entertainer, I guess I just, I just want more in life, Eddie. I just, I guess I want to be better than I am right now. And maybe that's why I like this movie. <laughs> so I'm going to give it 4.25 <laughs> because I just have a special thing in this heart for my movie. And like I said, I invented liking this movie. So like for me to abandon it like that is just cold to my own self and my own mythology. So 4.25 bullets letterbox get it just make yourself imdb so i could give movies uh 7.2s or whatever the movie poses the question do you want to make real money or do you want to live and die in the valley and 
I gotta say, man, I've said it before and I've said it again. I'm more than happy uh, doing the latter. So I think that like as much of a divide as I have between uh, myself and this movie on a personal level, I was still able to get a great amount of joy out of it. And you know, bros, they're just like us. Yeah, <laughs> I it, hanging out with the boys can be like that. And it can be like me and my friends talking about, you know, uh, I don't have any friends. (laughs) (laughs) What do they talk about? (laughs) You know, I I did kind of, when I was watching this, like, I forgot that it was a Valley heavy movie. And like, for me as a Valley novice, but someone who lived there, I was just kind of be like, oh, look, it's the Valley in a movie. That's sick. You know what I mean? I wanted to love it for that reason. And then I kind of got on my Tom Anderson halfway (laughs) through. Yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> it's it's funny, though. There's a line, you know, when they first get their new house in the valley, mm-hmm. uh, a clearly like ADR line when all the characters are facing away from the camera. You just mm-hmm. hear one of them indistinct which one of it, which one of the boys it is say, I thought you said Hollywood Hills, not Granada Hills. Yeah. <laughs> also, one last comment, the scene where Efron trips out is kind of beautiful because he really he really finds his calling through through taking drugs and partying and it really reaches this apex for him that just makes things clear. So that's cool. Like that. I'm going to give this one 3.25. I might have opened the floodgates. (laughs) (laughs) This might be a dangerous, dangerous (laughs) one time scenario. (laughs) (laughs) Um, that just about wraps up. We are your friends. Thank you, Malcolm for programming. Such a beautiful double feature. Yeah. That made me sad, happy, angry, all at once. The ebbs and flow of life. I Not to suck my own dick too much, <laughs> but I was like... You are this, so bad that you... <laughs> yeah, I'm so bad I could suck my own dick, so I'll, I'll get away with this. But I was like, damn, this is a great double feature. Like, I'm, I'm really... This was a really good choices by me this week. It really is. Yeah, I know, agree. There's yeah, real estate yeah. in question. There's a birthday yeah. cake. There's someone staring at a painting, <laughs> yeah. you know? Uh, they're both movies, and that is for yeah. damn sure. <laughs> also, I snuck a McChicken into my first viewing of this. I just remember that. Solo viewing. Opening weekend. This movie bombed, by the way. Bombed <laughs> oh, so yeah. fucking hard. And like, so I'm just chilling in a shoebox theater eating a McChicken. Pretty good experience, Remember too. which theater? Yeah, the Green Valley 8 in Watsonville, California. Ah, uh, see, maybe if I saw this in a theater in the valley. Yeah. Like, if I saw it at the Pacific Northridge Mall. Yeah. Like, right behind <laughs> Stereo One. Yeah. That bullshit con artist stereo <laughs> store. <laughs> uh, maybe I would have liked it more. Anyway, you can always uh, email us at extendedclippodcast.gmail.com. This one says podcast sponsorship opportunities. And it looks like, like okay. it looks like spam. <laughs> uh, no, wait, let's investigate. It's from sponsorships at podcorn.com. Let's get this money. Hi, extended clip team. We think your podcast would be a great fit for advertisers on podcorn. Oh, wait a second. This seems like a scam, but like the kind that would get me, you know? Yeah. Um, so but- Todd. Todd Gallett, head of partnerships, hit us up with a non-robot email, uh, and maybe we'll respond to it. But consider us interested. Yeah. Hmm. Just let, we, we you slid us the offer. We're sliding it back with a counter offer. I'm gonna make an offer you can't refuse. <laughs> Damn. So I guess no questions. <laughs> yeah. No. We didn't have any questions. It was, it was just that. It was just that. Um. Yeah. We're on Twitter. Extended clip sixty nine. I'm at iPod underscore video. I'm at Bitch Face Palace. I'm at Tallboy Thin Legs. 
and we're going to do our best of the decade soon. It's going to be cool. It's going to be in two weeks, and yeah. um, it's going to have a big poll. And if you want to be part of the poll, the DMs are open. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be big, Colossus, and it's knocking on your door, so watch out. It's going to uh, get you. Next week is our last uh, like best of the decade prep episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's like this little mini series that we're doing here. This is all homework. Yeah. And it's going to be... I'm deciding it right now. Oh. The A movie will be... It's not really an A movie, but... It's A movie. <laughs> Tony Scott's Unstoppable. Oh. Uh, the final film by the master. Uh, the action painter himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're going to watch that, and then we're going to watch the 1517 to Paris uh, by Clint Eastwood. And so that's next week where we will see you. Yeah. Anything else you want to say, JT? <laughs> <laughs> no. Give us a closing statement. To close um, the pod out of. Oh, fuck. God damn it. This is a lot. Um, 